Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the March 2023 Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? Oh, mate, I'm in a very good place at the moment on some long service leave from clinical work and just about about to start a new job as clinical director at Mater Education. So life is good. Yes. Mm. Well, congratulations on the new job. And I know that the team there are very excited to have you. So we'll look forward to hearing about your progress. Uh, yeah, a couple of bits of news before we do get started. So big for the uh, Simulcast crew and the Bond Translational Sim Collaborative, and that is that we've got a date for the next Sim Reconnect Symposium, and that'll be Wednesday the 15th of November at Bond University, Queensland, Australia. Uh, we haven't done any social media spraying or anything yet, but we will soon. Uh, but if you want to mark that date down for the Sim Reconnect. Uh, also a little shout out. Shout out to my friends at Woodlands Health in Singapore, um, where I'm going to be next week. Uh, this is a team who are building a new hospital and really thinking about how they develop their people as they do that uh, and using simulation. So we're lo- looking forward to the week there. And the last little shout out that I was going to do is to CSAM. So this is the European Sim Conference. Uh, they have extended their deadline for registrations. Uh, so this is in Lisbon in Spain in Portugal. Uh, And if you want to go to the website, it's csam-web.org and uh, you can find out all about that conference. I saw the, I saw the uh, program last week, Ben, and it just looks fantastic. Yes. uh, I was a little bit jealous to not be going, but uh, I've always heard such great things about going to CSAM. So definitely go put it on the list. I know. I feel like 2024 is our year. IMSH, CSAM, anything else we can go to. I feel like we're putting our heads down this year. Let's do it. It's a deal you heard it live, people. So (laughs) it's going to happen. Hang on, we're not live. Always leave yourself an hour. All right, get into it, Ben and Vic. Uh, we got four papers, and Ben's going to kick us off with a uh, paper from Advances. Go for it. I am. So uh, we are – how do I start with this one? So the title of the paper is called Embracing Multiple Stakeholders' Perspectives in Defining Competent Simulation Facilitators' Characteristics and Educational Behaviours, a Qualitative Study from Denmark, Korea, and Australia. And it's by Magritte Christensen et al. and published recently in Advances in Sim. And before I delve into this paper, uh, Vic, uh, you've heard this story a little bit before, but I do want to take you back a little bit on a slight segue uh, about why I think this paper is important to me. And it was one of the most impactful conversations I had at IMSH San Antonio many years ago. And it didn't happen at the conference. It happened at LA Airport on the way home. And I've mentioned this before, but sitting in just this like horrifically disappointing Chinese restaurant in an airport with some very upset looking Asian conference delegates who are realizing just how bad Western Chinese food can be. And now we're heading back to mainland China and Singapore. And I was just at this stage of my like debriefing journey where I was all in on debriefing with good judgment and advocacy and inquiry and the power of the learning conversation. And some of that stuff came up and the Singaporean delegate just said, you know, Ben, the thing that uh, Guaylo need to kind of understand is that for some of us in Asia, all this advocacy inquiry stuff is just, it's so inefficient. And we don't need to spend all that time protecting everyone's feelings in our culture. We just want to know what we did wrong and it's okay to just tell you. 
And it was just such an interesting, brutally honest and quite direct takedown of these really deeply held beliefs of mine. And it really stuck with me, that conversation, because I could totally see that perspective, even though it was really different to my own. And I know even with when we teach with Debriefing Academy, we'll be going to an online course and we'll have uh, have to adapt our facilitation strategies if we have a Western audience or, say, a more Southeast Asian audience. And we have to have some very different strategies at times, which is fun but really poses some thought for me. And we've covered cultural differences in debriefing a bit before, even in the older version of the Online Journal Club with Peter Diekman's papers, uh, and he's senior author on this one as well. So I was really looking forward to reading and seeing if we can start to chip away at understanding how these cultural inf- how culture influences debriefing. Because I feel like at the moment we're stuck in this, well, some cultures have a large power differential and it's very instructor-centered, and some cultures have a low power differential and it's more learner-centered and that's kind of it. Uh, and so I was just really wrestle with that because I think, you know, we read a lot about organizational psych safety and I think, you know, I feel like SIM and debriefing sometimes has an ambassadorial role in chipping away at some of these power dynamics. But is that the right choice for all cultures or are we just stomping kind of clunkily in a different culture with a Western lens and assuming that that is helpful when actually it's not? So anyway, long anecdote, but that's why this paper appealed to me. Uh, any thoughts? Before We're I here in? for the anecdotes, Ben. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, great. So this paper has two core questions, which are one, Which characteristics and educational behaviours do learners, facilitators and facilitator trainers, and that differentiation is important, expect from competent simulation facilitators? And then the second question is how do these expectations vary across different countries? And so they looked at uh, three different groups. So there were 75 participants interviewed in kind of a group interview type situation in three different Uh, geographical areas. So there was Copenhagen Academy for Medical Education in Denmark. There was the Sydney Clinical Skills and Simulation Centre in Australia and the Clinical Simulation Centre at Yonsei University College of Medicine in Seoul, South Korea. So that sounded pretty interesting to me, like a a decent sample. Uh, And so the researchers interviewed groups of two to six people who are either groups of learners facilitators or people who train simulation facilitators who uh, were sort of a convenient sample from people attending or teaching on some courses that were held in those three centers. And each set of interviews was done in the local uh, language, so i.e. Danish, Korean or English, and then analyzed for themes. And so what do they find? Well, actually, I'd have to confess there was less differences than I'd anticipated. And although the authors acknowledged some of that might be because there wasn't a mixing of cultures within the interviews. So if you potentially had people from different cultures together in the same room, maybe those that contrast would have been more highlighted. There was actually a lot of similarities. And for me, what was really striking is actually the sheer burden of expectation placed on facilitators. Like the study provides this beautiful table of all the things people want in a facilitator. And at times it almost like feels like this unattainable set of expectations for like the perfect partner. You know, like, yeah, he's got to be a good chef, but he's got to be in shape and he's got to be successful, but he's also going to prioritize watching TV with me. He's going to like my friends. If he's not going to like them too much, I've got to be the number one, kind of stuff like that. And I can see why people are just overwhelmed and nervous about debriefing and facilitating when there's actually this huge list of implicit expectations on how to do that. But it is pretty similar. So across cultures, people, you know, wanted somebody who nurtures learning, who's well-prepared and who's knowledgeable about the content. 
They valued clinical skills, being able to create a psychologically safe environment and who manages time but has some flexibility. And overall, despite some subtle differences in the cultures, people wanted to put someone who could give good, good feedback but would be in that sweet spot where it wasn't heavily critical or damaging for them. And they wanted to be pushed but not to the point of being overwhelmed. So all reasonable kind of stuff and definitely components of a wonderful educator. It does demonstrate quite dramatically how big the level of expectation people have and also how vulnerable people still feel in that learning environment. Any thoughts, Zeke? Oh, so much to like about this uh, article, Ben. Mm. Uh, to take a little deviation for a minute, I feel like the qualitative uh, methodology people would have really liked this article as a bit of an exemplar for how to describe the researchers' positioning and how to describe their methodology for how they gleaned those f- uh, themes uh, from the raw data that they collected through those uh, interview processes. So uh, a little instructional thing there for some of us who are still at the early stages of that journey. Uh, in terms of what they found, I'm with you. There's nothing really surprising here except that it's so much that people do expect of facilitators. Uh And I liked, well, I was torn a little bit between the fact that they put them in two tables. One were the facilitator characteristics and the other were the uh, facilitator behaviours because, of course, most of the characteristics are only actually gleaned through observation of the behaviours or experiencing of the behaviours. So I thought that was slightly a false dichotomy, but it does correlate with what you've said before is that the behaviours we take into debriefing are an expression of you know, who we are and how we think about things, not just the behaviours that we engage in. So I thought it was nice to sort of see that articulated. I also didn't get a great sense that there was a difference between the countries. Now, it always then makes us think, well, maybe there isn't such a big difference or maybe the study just didn't find them. And I think whenever you do something like this, you're trying to coalesce ideas around concepts and maybe things contract a little bit, whereas if you're actually watching the debriefs, maybe you would see some differences. Uh, so uh, it didn't worry me, though. I suspect that human beings are similar in many, many ways, and they like uh, a fair go, and they like to be improving, and they don't like to be insulted, and all those other things that we know people don't want in facilitators. Uh, but I think how they actually articulated it is pretty nice and if people look down that table three and four and just had food for thought about how does this fit with my own facilitation style uh, it would be quite useful yeah absolutely so there were a few differences that that were quite subtle that I thought were nice just that they teased those out so the fact that the Korean instructors actually wanted other structures to have a good sense of authority, uh, whereas participants still didn't want someone who was overly critical or harsh. And there was a larger emphasis on qualification and the demonstrated ability to meet certain standards and to hold learners to accountable standards as well, uh, and a little bit less emphasis on humour, which came up in the European and, and Australian one a bit more, which is not super surprising for us as Aussies. The Aussies, I think, somewhat unsurprisingly, given our kind of tall poppy syndrome, wanted a facilitator who spends time demonstrating fallibility and by sharing personal experiences, uh, and they valued a facilitator with a good sense of humour. And that is useful for me because I do remember you giving me a tip after a talk at uh, Australian Sim Congress once about finding that sweet spot between being vulnerable in a talk might actually work in an Australian context, but not actually not work in a United States context, for example. 
Uh, and while the Danish teams valued humor too, they had less emphasis on that personal fallibility. So yeah, I thought it was a nice breakdown of some of the differences and a lot of similarities. And pragmatically, though, I'm a little bit struck at kind of the contrast between my personal experience facilitating debriefs in different cultural contexts, which I feel are quite significantly different versus the amount of similarity was found here. So I'm not sure this study, either my experience is different or this study didn't pick up those differences as well, but uh, nice to see how we are all the same in some ways. Sometimes principles just play out differently than in language and format, and I think that's the thing that's Mm. hard to capture here, although some of the quotes do that. But if you actually had excerpt quotes from the debriefs themselves, we might see more differences, I suspect. But there is a danger, isn't there? As as we explore and uh, are very interested and in having some sensitivity to culture, we still run the, rin- run the risk then of pigeonholing people and go, oh, yeah, Korean people expect this and Danish people expect that. And there's a risk in that as well because probably there's more within country uh, diversity as much as there is between country diversity. So uh, we probably want to, we don't want to replace your um, prior assumptions with just a new set of assumptions. Yeah, 100%. I think that's true. And they, they do discuss that quite nicely in the article as well and highlight that as a risk. Mm. 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 But uh, shout out to the analogy because I'm just imagining you sitting there with pictures of facilitators swiping left or right because they don't meet your criteria. <laughs> I resent. Too judgy. uh, Too quick. Not funny enough. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, Let's move on, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. So I'm going to talk about an article uh, that was published last year in the Journal uh, of of the, the Association for Surgical Education, not something we normally read, but it's a sim paper, so we're all here for it. Uh, and the title is Simulation Versus Reality. What can interprofessional simulation teach us about team dynamics in the trauma bay? And it's a fairly big author group. Doug Cassidy and uh, Kristen Jogerst are the uh, co-first authors uh, with a team of people, some of which I know, uh, who are researchers and clinicians from... Uh, Boston. And the background to this paper is a few general principles. Um, Effective trauma care requires a lot of good teamwork. Uh, This paper then goes on to say there's a lot of reasons, though, why there might not always be harmonious teamwork between two particular groups, and that is the emergency department and members of the surgical team who attend the uh, trauma care in the ED trauma bay. Uh, and obviously as part of that background and lots of things that we've been involved with and that we've read about suggest that team training might help. Uh, and I'm a bit biased here because uh, they acknowledge this in the paper too, that team training isn't just about training the technical aspects. It is a way that we can f- build familiarity, trust and this culture of cooperation. So in this study, which was done at a large hospital in Boston, they sought out, and I'm going to read their ambitions, uh, to examine the interprofessional relationships in their ED trauma room, uh, to establish a novel curriculum, a SIM-based curriculum for reflecting on and exploring these relationships uh, and using SIM and debriefing uh, in order to do that. So what did they actually do? They did a 
baseline snapshot of the collaborative relationships as perceived by emergency medicine trainees, surgical trainees, and emergency medicine nurses. So just these three groups, which uh, it's fair to say just for the context of people who aren't involved in trauma care, that's actually still a pretty narrow set of groups of who might be involved in this trauma room, but they are three fairly key groups. And the way that they did the baseline snapshot was they used a sort of interprofessional rating scale uh, as well as some narrative surveys. They also then um, designed and delivered some interprofessional team training sessions, some monthly trauma sims, which they either did in situ in their trauma bay or in a sim room uh, involving these same residents, trainees and the nurses and their pretty common trauma scenarios. And then they did a debrief with those uh teams, and I'm going to quote here, to reflect on the scenario and how it compared or contrasted with prior real-life trauma resuscitation. So there was a very direct, it wasn't just what happened in the sim, but how does this compare to real life as per the title? So what did they find? Uh, The first thing they did was tell us about these uh, baseline snapshots. So they had 80 uh, total uh, residence nurses who answered that and that's in figure one and Ben it's pretty shocking because it basically is a litany of poor relationships problems with mutual respect and professionalism problems with communication problems with different goals and I was kind of struck that they were a bit worried that there weren't a few more positive things and their baseline snapshot and I don't know whether they were sort of keen to find the negatives as sometimes we are uh, when we're doing either practice or research uh, or in fact there just really weren't any positive things but I was pretty struck by that what about you? Look similarly yeah uh, but I was also struck by how believable they were and also kind of um, inspired by the fact that they were able to get people to be that honest so early on, which I think in and of itself is still, you know, to have that integrity to follow through and that this is what things are really like uh, must mean they had some trust in the process and the people facilitating as well. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll come back to that. But then maybe uh, the even deeper, richer data that they analysed and and, uh, gave us a sense of was then the analysis they did of the debrief. So it was interesting, not only did they do these debriefs after the sim sessions, but they recorded them and analysed them. So I always think it's a little bit tricky when you're trying to both do the educational training or quality improvement work at the same time as you're studying it. Uh, But that's what they did. And they came up with six main themes. And I would suggest people have a bit of a look at the table there if they're interested. They weren't surprising, but they were uh, things like prior relationships matter. Uh, how what kind of rapport did people have with the uh, between the teams even before they came to the trauma call and the importance surprise surprise of the pre-trauma huddle Uh, and then other themes such as role and team identity about saying how clearly defined roles make a difference Uh, things like resource allocation uh, how do you actually get the right number of people in the room and who's doing what Uh, they talked about the impact of the simulation experience the behaviour of team leaders, uh, as well as just the nature of interprofessional teamwork. And they've laid that out really nicely in some sub-themes and some representative quotes. Uh, But throughout all of them, I think what sort of comes out is that they used this debrief effectively both to reflect on these uh, relationships and culture and roles, uh, but then also to really closely connect that with their practice on the floor. And I think, again, along the lines of good on them, 
they weren't starting out in a entirely positive place, but I think with persistence, they were prepared to, you know, unearth plenty of things that weren't easy to deal with and then say, let's talk about them and let's move on. So their conclusions were that, surprise, surprise, opportunities for structured debriefing and conversations were very valuable uh, and that SIM might be one of those. So, uh, you know, my reflections with this is um, it's great work. Uh, I was kind of disappointed that there were only trainees in this. I'm not exactly sure where the senior staff were, the attendings in their language, because they weren't involved in the study. They weren't involved in the sims. And from what they described of their description, I wasn't even sure if they were involved in the trauma care on the floor. I presume they were, but it certainly didn't uh, figure large. And I'm a little bit disturbed still that across so many contexts, uh, these professional silos and dysfunction is still something something that needs so much work from so many of us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Vic. I, I thought it was a beautifully written paper and a lovely, thoughtful summary of what are depressingly common problems. And uh, it just really hit home for me reading this paper and thinking about like the work we do with Stork as well, where we fly around to so many different hospitals. But at the end of the day, the universality of the themes that come up and our inability en masse to overcome them or have a strategy to overcome them. I'm just finding really depressing <laughs> lately because it's all about, you know, unfamiliarity, unclear roles, uh, and huge challenges with team uh, convergence in particular uh, and when hospital microcultures combine to look after one patient. Even just some of the language, you know, the emphasis on owning a patient was, was stuck out for me a little bit in terms of there was some lovely examples of how ED and surgical teams were seeing that they owned the patient and therefore had more authority about some of the decision-making early on in their analysis. And, and so I think we've just got so far to go. And I feel like some of the solutions really are out there now, but we as a healthcare institution don't seem to be en masse able to deal with this problem it's just almost this uh predictable systems failure that we've just accepted uh, as part of mm. our, the complexity of our healthcare so uh, i know there were just so few references to any patient uh, autonomy yeah. perspective in any of this mm. um and maybe that wasn't asked so maybe we didn't get it mm -hmm. uh but also so many you know they say there's conflict so the way they resolve that is a technical solution so there's a line in here that says trauma activations are run by alternating the leadership and procedure roles between the em and surgical teams so there's no thought about what a patient might need and who might have the skill mix on the day it's just what's fair between the teams and i find that sort of approach again disheartening because that's it's all about then oh, what do we deserve in terms of our access to training not what does this patient need and maybe consistency in those roles is far more important uh for the quality of care than uh than people might realize so uh food for thought but this is the kind of work that's going to help yeah 100 percent, and i just applaud them for uh bearing all that so honestly and openly with that much authenticity and integrity and looking at the problem and genuinely working on it, which is, you know, because it is so common in so many places that we go. Uh, one other little shout out, these co-authors were fellows at the time that they did this work. Um, and so having uh, had a bit of a chat with one of the supervisors there, um, they've also gone to other institutions. So hopefully spreading the positive uh, approaches far and wide. Oh, fantastic. 
All right, Ben, you're going to talk now moving from the uh, face-to-face world to thinking about screen-based simulation. Uh, We are indeed. So we are moving across to clinical simulation in Nursing Journal. Uh, And we're looking at a question called, what is the best method to teach screen-based simulation in anesthesia distance education? That's by Barry Swerdlow et al. Uh, and we've had chats previously on Simulcast with some of our colleagues, like uh, Susie Cardon Edgren, for example, about the challenges of scale in nursing education. We need in healthcare a lot of nurses, and cohorts are, cohorts are large enough that actually providing those nice curated simulated experiences for them to learn from isn't always feasible for educational institutions, at least at the volume that we'd like. So one potential solution for that is, is VR or screen-based simulations, and they can be replicated en masse. And in this study from Portland, the team explores some of the issues surrounding that. So specifically, they ask if synchronous learning, i.e. getting a bunch of students playing one simulation together electronically with the guidance of an instructor, or doing that, and then after that, having an asynchronous session, i.e. you watch the instructor as a group, and then you get to play as many times as you want on your own later, and what impact that has on learners' perception of their experience. So this is a sequel in that there was a previous article where they looked at whether synchronous and asynchronous in isolation were superior. And there were some concerns from the previous participants that actually it was quite hard to learn this technology and that that was a barrier to engagement in and of itself. So in this one, they went, great, we'll have a facilitator demonstrate, talk the group through, and then let them play afterwards. So it's a small study. The authors ran uh, 14 nursing students through a screen-based anesthesia simulation where your avatar has to deal with rising CO2 levels in a patient who's having an appendicectomy. And the participants joined in a group session where an educator demonstrated that scenario and they provided guidance to the instructor about what to do and make choices in the scenario itself. And then they were given free reign to just run the scenario themselves multiple times on their own, around like 10 times. So after that, the authors compared participant responses to a Likert scale survey about their perception of learning benefits and compared that to their previous study where similar students had given feedback on a fairly similar survey. And look, they didn't find a significant difference in participants' perception on the Likert scales, uh, but they did highlight that they found in the qualitative comments that students were quite vocal about preferring asynchronous learning in their qualitative feedback. So they liked the fact that they could go away, rehearse, and quietly make some mistakes and not have everybody else see. And some of them liked getting it to do it over and over again just to hammer down those learning objectives. But there was some, you know, quite nice blunt feedback as well about some of the some of the downsides of repetitive screen-based education and in particular there was some who commented at a certain point once you grasp the principles then repeating the exercise was essentially not learning the principle it was learning what button to click at the right time Uh, and I think that was key for me here and I've got to say you know VR or screen-based sim if it's not carefully designed does run that risk of becoming a simulacrum rather than a simulation where we we train people to play the game and tell them that they've been trained to deal with the situation I think that's okay if the principles are still there and uh, it's fun but it was clear for some of them that it wasn't always enjoyable uh, playing this game, either instructing somebody else to play a video game or uh, to do it over and over themselves. 
I like where you started that review, Ben, uh, about this need for efficiency, because I think it's almost like that has become a slightly dirty word for educators of don't bother me with that thing. I'm, I'm here about the pedagogical excellence. Uh, whereas the reality is we're always looking for efficiency and scalability, uh, but trying to do that without sacrificing effectiveness. So I think it is a laudable aim to be thinking about how we can expand out or leverage our instructor resources, which are valuable and, and rare. Uh, and I think it's, it is speaking of assumptions, sometimes it is, oh, face-to-face and synchronous is always better if we can, but this article is set up to challenge that a little bit. Uh, like you, I was sort of surprised at how much they enjoyed doing that, but it does speak a little bit to learner preferences for autonomy, I suppose. And if they did have a opportunity where they could just do the test and leave it alone some of those people who uh, gave some of those frank responses might have been happy like we've shown we can do it we don't need to spend as much time here fair enough I think it does show the challenges of measurement in any of these comparison studies on educational uh, approaches which I always find slightly problematic uh, in that you know we don't have no idea how good anyone is after this and if you set it up as intervention a versus intervention b uh, that's that's the question you're asking and i think it's pretty hard to answer when it comes to actual effectiveness uh but at the same time i think it still gives us an idea what i think is in some ways better questions is how do each of these things fit into a comprehensive approach to learning and what you might hope is that there's some asynchronous there maybe there's some synchronous and there's a small amount of face-to-face Actually, I suspect in this learning program, there is that, uh, but the study only reports the sort of comparison of two different elements of it, and that may not be the most valuable comparison we can make. But uh, super interesting. As one who doesn't really like screen-based stimulation, I'm more than happy to read that, uh, you know what, it does have a place definitely. Absolutely. All right, we're going to then change the tune entirely, although there is a little bit of virtual simulation in this next one. Uh, And we're going to think about interprofessional education again, but in this case, in a medico-legal bent. So the title of this paper is An Interprofessional Medical Malpractice Mock Trial, Event Evolution and Assessment of Efficacy. There's a lot of I's and M's in the words I'm about to say, Ben, so listen up carefully. Uh, And this is by Dickinson et al., uh, a group from Little Rock in Arkansas, publishing in the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, or IJOS. So the background to this is that being sued uh, in healthcare is in some countries a high likelihood and in all contexts a highly stressful experience, uh, which has a lot of negative outcomes, both for the participants involved, obviously, if it also involves um, poor outcomes for patients, that's not so good. And it also can potentially lead to defensive medicine, which is not always best practice medicine. Uh, but for a lot of healthcare professionals, the first they experience they have of being in a courtroom is when they get sued or if they're called as a witness. So a lot of people have tried things like simulated mock trials. Uh, They can be quite a valuable educational experience, but they're actually still pretty rare. The the paper details a few published examples. Uh, And usually they're uh, only uni professional. I don't know, Ben, did you do any of that in any of your training, a simulated mock trial? No, definitely not. And I I love the idea. So I was all ears. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting because although I spent one year only as a law student, uh, we did do mooting all the time. Uh, and I didn't know it was called 
simulation back then, but that's really what moot court is in law training. Uh, so it's interesting the difference in traditions. All right, so what does this group do? Careful now, I'm going to really try and articulate my words properly. Since 2018, they've been running an inter-institutional, interprofessional medical malpractice mock trial. Uh, and they, <laughs> thank you, Ben. <laughs> and the reason they do this is they're trying to expose students to the learning content related to medical malpractice. They're trying to create an interprofessional learning environment where students can participate as trial lawyers, witnesses, jury members. Uh, and they're also, this is a kind of next level again, trying to uh, promote some inter institutional collaboration between different universities and, in particular, people like law schools and health professional schools. Uh, added to that, this study has also got, because it happened around the time of the pandemic uh, starting, some uh, different formats for this. So it was traditionally a face-to-face -face thing, but then because of the pandemic evolved into being hybrid and virtual. So this study, they describe how they got to doing this uh, mock trials and then they providing some evidence of efficacy. So the SIM itself is a beautiful description in here. Incredibly hard work, I think, is how I'd start this description. Lots of uh, work from the subject matter experts in law, in interprofessional education and in SIM, preparing the materials, case materials, jury instructions, judge instructions. They give a long list of, you know, just what it takes to set up something like this. Uh, the case that they set up was actually pretty disturbing. Uh, this was a case where a patient had been discharged from a psychiatric unit uh, who then went out and murdered his girlfriend uh, and the parents of the girl were then suing the psychiatrist and the other healthcare providers were uh, in, in involved in this trial as witnesses. Super intensive preparation, as we said, not just by the faculty but also for the students themselves uh, and this involved law students, health profession students from many different disciplines uh, and they were given scripts in some cases or role cards in other cases. Uh, so they ran the trial and that, the educational exercise took about three hours in each time and did a debrief. And pretty impressive work, 386 learners over a series of these exercises, 19 professions, four institutions and 12 interprofessional facilitators. So even by the time they got there, Ben, I felt slightly exhausted. Yeah, it doesn't look easy, but uh, it looked also like it could be enormous fun. <laughs> that is true. I suspect <laughs> they all had a good time. Uh, and they gave some examples there. They gave an actual little run sheet of the sort of three hours of the session about how it went. So as we said, they wanted to say this worked at some level. Uh, so the way they approached their evaluation was multifaceted. They used a scale, and I notice in interprofessional education there's a lot of these scales, Ben, so I'm not going to pretend any um, knowledge of them, but this one was called the Interprofessional Collaborative Competency Attainment Survey, and the paper does go through uh, how what questions they ask in order to measure that. Look, I wasn't really surprised. The before and after says they had a global improvement in their scores on this scale. Uh, and interestingly, it didn't matter whether it was face-to-face, -face, virtual or hybrid. Uh, there were high levels of self-reported psychological safety. And they also did a thematic analysis of some narrative surveys which asked the participants what was most valuable. And uh, some of them related to gaining knowledge about legal process, some of them about the roles and responsibilities of different people in malpractice trials. Uh, a lot was simply about gaining the perspectives of people from those different professions uh, through both the case itself and the debrief. So uh, I thought, wow, good on them. This is great work. And um, 
a more than workmanlike approach to trying to evaluate its uh, utility. Uh, and I think it really challenges to expand our horizons of what we think about as interprofessional uh, in SIM. Uh, but I also think for most of us who don't have these sort of resources, this is going to be pretty aspirational, uh, but probably more food for thought than something most of us can just copy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, particularly when you're sort of looking at your curriculum and going, what is it that I'm specifically trying to tick off with this one? But it does sound at the same time just so valuable and valued by the participants. And it reminds me a little bit of your uh, your virtual ED day for the med students in terms of seeing work as done and seeing the values of different uh, craft groups within that play out and how valuable that can be. So, uh, yeah, hats off to them and, and their uh, reporting on you know what I would have loved to have seen is a few more reflections from the faculty because with as, as with all these things, I bet you the lawyers, doctors, other healthcare professionals and the SIM people all learnt at least as much if not more than the students mm, very did true, yeah. th through this process of collaboration. So sometimes those are the uh, other positive spin-offs that don't get as uh, tangibly measured, shall we say. No, 100%. This is some nice, innovative and unique stuff. Exactly. Uh, so next time we talk to you, you're going to be in your new job and we'll expect you will have created a revolution as you do. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing a little update on that, Ben. But in the meantime, uh, you better go and enjoy March. Absolutely. Right back at you. Have a great time in Singapore. Will do. All right. Well, this is Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 